Great. So you have a pretty significant handout. Um, it does have pictures. It's mostly pictures. Um, but up at the top in the box, if you'll take note, um, I kind of put a review for us up there because I feel like we've made a lot of progress um, and we have come a long way in Hebrews. <clears throat> and so in general, just to kind of skim through that, we have covered a lot of ground. And some of these chapter numbers are not um, exact. And so it might not be like chapter one, verse one. And so I just kind of rounded a little bit with some of those. But Essentially, Christ is greater than the angels. We've talked about the prophet Christ is greater than Moses. We've talked about the high priest Christ is greater than Aaron. We have talked about that the eternal priest Christ is greater than Melchizedek. Um, And then in chapter 8, we talked about that Christ is a a superior covenant. And then here we are. Okay, so we are in chapter 9. And so this is broken up kind of in the section that I have um, here that we studied this week is... um, 9, 1 through 10. And so I feel like, and I'm going to kind of give a disclaimer here, but um, 1 through 10 deals a lot with the physical aspects. And so we know and we have heard so many times in our own study and in with our lectures that um, that these things are obviously all pointing to Christ. Um, but I am going to take a lot of time today because I do think kind of the main idea of this section is really dealing with these physical things. And so I think it's okay for us to kind of hover over these symbols and just kind of consider these symbols for what they are, um, knowing that um, that this is about Jesus. And so we will come around to that, but I also want to kind of give room for next week's lesson that will really um, uh, bring this home to us. All right, so um, to start off with, um, I really love the like tabernacle tackle. I love the idea of that. Um, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and so if you are familiar with that, it is essentially Catholic light. It looks like a Catholic church, and so there are a lot of accoutrements that kind of come along um, with that service and the, the gestures and um, all of the, the robes and the ropes and the chalice and the chalice, the different kind of linens that come along with the, with the, um, the chalice. And all of these things kind of all pile on top of each other. They're all um, really wonderful and symbolic. Um, they can become, and they did become for me, kind of this um, rote kind of ritual. And so I think that... Uh, that's part of what we'll kind of talk about with this. Um, even in the Episcopal Church, they um, they use incense. And there was a family, um, there were these kids in our church that always had to do the incense, which was like billowing smoke as you processed, you know, up the aisles and things. Um, and we would always kind of make fun of them and um, feel sorry for them. Um, <laughs> But so this is the this church that I grew up in, and um, we were there all the time. And so every time the door was unlocked, even when the door was not unlocked, we were there at the church. Um, and so for a lot of my childhood, I was at what they called an acolyte and what you might think of kind of like an altar boy. Um, and so I was in the service and doing a lot of these kind of... Um, rituals and things that um, were essential to the priest. And so when I was in sixth grade... Um, I was standing in the back of the church, and um, sixth grade was a really kind of pivotal age for me, um, as I think it is for a lot of kids, but um, I was holding, I was a torchbearer that day, and so I was standing in the back of the church waiting because we would process forward, and so it would be a cross and then with two torches um, kind of flanking it, Um, and so I was one of the torchbearers that day. 
And um, I was uh, waiting for our time, and I was kind of looking at my shoes. I was very vain about my shoes that day and really taken with them. And I was, this is essential to our story because what I wasn't paying attention to was my lit torch. Um, I, and this was also happening around like 1988, 1989. And so I think you remember maybe like what that meant for my hairstyle and the product that was involved there. And so I, I don't need to tell you what happened, but I was looking over and all of a sudden I hear a crackling and the crackling was me and my hair had gone up in flames. And so there was a gasp and a passing off of the torch and I am like running out of the church, sort of muffling the, um, the flames and putting them out. Um, and I find my parents, my parents were kind of coming in as I was running out and kind of confirmed that I was not burnt up. Um, and then was like, well, you're okay. Go back in there, you know. And so there I am holding my torch again. Um, and everybody in church was very polite. Um, and this is a funny, funny story, but what's not funny is the smell of burnt hair. Um, and so it was just filling the church and everybody was being really nice about it, except for my best friend who was beside me, who was not being nice about it. Um, but I felt, and maybe because of the scarring experience, but I felt um, the significance of these objects. And also in sixth grade, we went through something called con- confirmation, where it kind of, you learn the Nicene Creed, and you learn sort of like why, what the symbolism is behind a lot of the things that, um, that we did. And so I think, and maybe I give myself too much credit, but I do think that I recognized um, that all of these things that can be a distraction are supposed to be pointing to something bigger, um, pointing to uh, something more significant. And uh, that's the intention, even though it can really fall short of that. Um, Okay, I'm organizing my notes. And so I think that even in our church, you know, we have these choices of kind of the physical... um, um, accessories, the physical equipment that we're, we're making these choices to, to point towards that. And that is a good thing. And so I think it's really easy for us to pivot right now to the tabernacle and to see the things that we talked about and we studied this week, um, that they are too trying to point to and did point to, um, something larger. And so we see so many, um, echoes of this. And so if you look in your handout, um, go to, there's a diagram of the tabernacle and it's probably like on the second page, the back of the first page. Um, this tabernacle that was supposed to be an earthly place of holiness. Um, and so we see that and I think what is helpful for, um, that I think that diagram is really clear. And then if you look, kind of glance through, kind of hold your place there, but also glance through to the next two diagrams because they can show you. What was helpful to me was to see the scale. It has it compared to like a football field. So you can see kind of how big it is. And then below that is Solomon's temple, which is not really what our passage is dealing with. He's really talking, the writer is really talking about the tabernacle <clears throat> more so than the temple. But it's nice to kind of have that point of reference. And then if you turn one more picture past, it places the tabernacle um, where it would have been in the camp. And so you can see kind of its placement there too with the tribes surrounding <clears throat> that it is this heart. And so you have it as um, the center and the heart of the camp. But even within the tabernacle, you know, the further and further, uh, the farther and farther that you get in there, the more to the to the heart um, you're approaching. <coughs> um, and so to go through, kind of flip back to the outline part of this, but 
Um, in our passage, there's not really a mention of that outer court area. Um, and there's some different theories about that. I think that Pink suggests that, that the writer doesn't mention it because everything associated with the outer court was fulfilled in the days of Christ's flesh, um, and that it's accessible to all people. Um, but just like you talked about in your groups, the first section, the holy place, is where the lampstand was, where the table and the showbread were. And that's kind of touched on in verses 2 and 6. And then in the second section, the most holy place. <clears throat> and we have the altar of incense. Um, I think that you probably mentioned in your group that this was really in the most holy place. Um, Jones says that this discrepancy has to do with where the incense is functioning, that it would be used in the most holy place. And so that's why it's um, labeled being there. Um, and then, of course, the ark with the manna and the staff and the tablets um, and the lid with the cherubim and the mercy seat, um, which is essentially a throne room. And so we've come into the center of the tabernacle to where God's, God resided. That's where he lived. Um, and so I read some some ideas about these specific items, and I think it's really interesting um, to kind of press into that. And I can kind of go down these rabbit trails of like, oh, this symbolizes this, and this symbolizes this. And um, I think she t- and she touches on that in the questions, which I think is a really rewarding kind of exercise. But for us, I don't know if it's um, to our point right now. Um, but the priest on the Day of Atonement, and so... <clears throat> He would have gone in and tried to, to kind of walk through what his um, his role would have been on that day. So in Exodus twenty eight two, it says that he would be divested of his garments of glory and beauty. He would be clad only in the holy linen. And so there's this kind of unveiling of him that he goes in. Um, and in my mind, I'm kind of picturing him like in his undies, you know, like he's walking in there. <clears throat> and this really um, frightening thing, like totally um, exposed. And he enters in with a censer of coals and a handful of incense. And so that would be thrown on and that would be covering the mercy seat. Um, he would take the blood of a previously killed bull as a sin offering for himself and sprinkle that on the mercy seat itself, which is this really kind of, in my mind, like violent, bloody um, action. Um, and it it makes it really real. The sacrifice that had to happen outside, um, the death that had to happen is being splashed there on that seat. He's not entering in with, um, without an entrance ticket. Um, he's not entering in uh, in this free kind of way. And so there is this um, imputation of guilt to the sacrifice, the expediation of it through death. Um, and the carrying of the blood into the presence of Jehovah and the sprinkling of it upon his throne, witness was born to his acceptance and the atonement which had been made. And so after he splashed the blood on the mercy seat, then he would go out and kill a goat as a sin offering for the people, and that would be sprinkled as well. And then they would go out and let a live goat go. And that was supposed to symbolizing, um, and the live goat would go out into the wilderness. And that was supposed to be separating the people's sin as far as the east is from the west. Um, and so these are all these kind of really um, elemental, the smoke and the, the stench of... Um, of animal flesh and uh, the um, the dimness. This is all this really kind of heavy symbolic stuff that's happening in the furnishings and in the architecture and in all of these gestures that are pointing towards this larger meeting. Um, and we have this impulse. I think all of us have this. We certainly see it throughout, like 
contemporary architecture, all throughout literature. These symbols are everywhere. They're built into our lives in this organic way that we cannot separate from ourselves. Um, and so we can see, and I have, there are a couple of examples that are really, um, it, that came to my mind. But um, in New York City, the Guggenheim is supposed to be shaped kind of like this shell. And so as you walk through it, <coughs> you kind of cycle and spiral up as you're looking at the art. And so this is supposed to kind of bring you around um, and elevate you as you're looking at these things. You're um, physically elevating as you walk around the spiral, but you're also sort of emotionally, artistically, intellectually doing mirroring the same thing with your body. Um, Anne Rand has a book called The Fountainhead, um, which is essentially like um, atheistic. But in it, she has a part with a cathedral um, that, and if you look at the picture below, is supposed to worship the individual. And so these hands raised in that picture are not like worshiping something outside of himself, but is worshiping himself. Um, so we would say thumbs down on that. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite books is Jane Eyre, and Thornfield Hall is where um, kind of the romantic lead lives, um, but the house itself mirrors his character development. Um, it eventually... Um, uh, spoiler alert, it is housing his secret crazy wife there for a while. Um, it is very lonely and barren, eventually burns totally um, almost to the ground um, to, to represent this kind of rebirth that, that he goes through. Um, and so we see these things all over the place. I think that the best example, the most like specific example is the Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, where Quasimodo... Uh, is supposed to the the cathedral of Notre Dame really represents his character, and so his the uh, hump of the of the cathedral is like his back, and the it has the fine buttresses that are coming off of Notre Dame, and these are sort of like his bowed arms and legs. It has a, a rose window, and he only has one eye, and so the rose window is kind of like his eye. But the significance of that is that Esmeralda, the one of the female characters comes in and um, she has been suspected of murder and she comes in for protection into the church um, and he holds her up and says sanctuary um, and so the church in very real literal ways and in very metaphorical ways it becomes her sanctuary and <coughs> um, Hugo is really interesting I wish that we had time to kind of talk about because he has whole passages where he talks about like exactly what we're what is happening in in our passage in that this edifice um, this building, we all know, is falling away. We all know that it's disintegrating um, and that the things that it represents are the things that will last, um, that the, the message that is in it is what um, will be eternal. Um, and so when we're looking at our passage and we are approaching um, the most holy place we see that God was veiled um, in this really thick and heavy fabric. Um, and there, there's this barrier to his presence. You can't break through. There's only one person. You have this mediator who can sometimes go through only one day of year. Um, and so there's this contrast between what's happening outside with me and then what's happening with God inside. But I am not there, and I cannot approach um, and so we sense like our lives, like their lives, their efforts um, are divorced from him. There's a schism um, that can't really be breached. 
And so, and part of this is for their protection. We know that he's totally holy. We know that when they do go, when they have touched those things in inappropriate ways, that people die, um, that his holiness cannot collide with sin, that something has to give in that. Um, and it's sin. Um, and so I have, I'm going to, this is a book that my kiddos have, and I think that it, um, it's a really great, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, um, but it's a really great sort of summary of that um, separation. I know not everybody can see this, but I'll kind of hold it up. Um, but they go, it goes through, and the pictures are really great, but the phrasing sometimes is a little bit cheesy. But it starts um, with creation, and it's really wonderful. Um, and then you have the fall. And I like that the book has everything in these really bright, kind of wonderful colors. And then after the fall, everything is muted. Um, and so after the fall, to show the people they had to stay outside, God put some warrior angels in front of the garden. And the angels were like a big keep-out sign. And now things were sometimes bad, and the people were sometimes sad. But the people still kept sinning because they didn't want God to be in charge. And so no one could come into God's wonderful place. And God said, because of your sin, you can't come in. And one of my children likes to use this on other children. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And God wanted people to remember, it's wonderful to live with him. But because of your sin, you can't come in. And so the picture here is the temple. and so this, the book obviously kind of skips over the tabernacle, but for our purposes, this is we're talking about the same thing. So he told the people to build a special building called this temple where he would live. And in the middle of the temple was the most wonderful place in the world, the place where God was, with nothing bad and nothing sad. And it was very exciting. But then God told the people to put a big curtain around his wonderful place. And the curtain had pictures of warrior angels on it. And it was a big keep out sign. And for hundreds of years, the temple, um, the temple curtain reminded people that God had said, it's wonderful to be with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. And then babies <clears throat> became grownups and babies became grownups. And hundreds of summers and winters passed by and the keep out curtain stayed in the temple. And then one day, God's son came to live in this world as a person. And well, I mean, I think it's really nice. The colors of his um, sort of wrappings and his clothes are the same colors as um, uh, the curtain. And he was called Jesus. And Jesus always did what God said. And Jesus never sinned. And Jesus visited the temple where the keep out curtain hung. And Jesus knew things that were, knew that things were sometimes bad and sometimes sad. And he said that God had sent him to open the way back to God's wonderful place where there would be nothing bad and no one sad. And I know you can't see it, but there's this wonderful moment right here. You know, we have the, the laver, the bronze laver down here and the altar of burnt offering here. And there's a lamb being led away. And there's, um, Jesus is looking with this knowing, <laughs> sympathetic look at the lamb as it's walking. But the people still didn't want God to be in charge, and so they decided to let Jesus die on, uh, put Jesus on a cross to die. And it was the most bad thing that had ever happened. It was the most sad day of all time. Okay, and on the cross, Jesus took our sin. All the bad things we do, all the sad things they cause, Jesus took them all from us. And when he did, something amazing, astonishing, and astounding happened. The curtain tore. God had ripped up the keep out sign. And God's wonderful place is open again. Because Jesus died, we can go in. 
And they, the book goes through a little bit farther um, and talks about heaven and things. But um, I think it's a really great kind of picture of the curtain tearing and God who has had this veil on being unveiled to us. That we are, that there is this way that has been opened. And Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one talks about this specific moment. And when Jesus had cried out again <coughs> in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Um, and so, opening this path to the most holy place, John Owen says about it, that then is the gracious presence of God, wherein two believers draw nigh, not in the, um, in the confidence of the atonement made for them and the acceptance thereon. And we see in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so we see him parting the curtain and allowing us to come in. Um, and the great miracle of this that is really shocking is that not only that, Christ has broken through to us, and not only is he the superior tabernacle, but that I, too, can house that Holy Spirit. Um, it is almost blasphemous to me to think about that. Um, it's this shock on top of shock, plot twist on top of plot twist, that he has um, come to me and acted in this way. And so this idea of that I could house the Holy Spirit um, so what does that look like for me today? When I walk out of here and I get my crazy kids, what does it look like for him to tabernacle in me? Um, I'm really glad that we don't have to kill livestock at church. Um, but this Christ in me oftentimes feels overwhelmingly intimidating um, or like a laughable fairy tale. Um, and so I feel like I can't, it's hard to keep him in there. <laughs> I feel like it's disordered and it's dirty, um, that my vanity and my self-obsession, my lack of sympathy for people's hurts, um, that it does not look like the most holy place. Um, my heart looks like my actual home, filthy and chaotic with screaming and tears. Um, it feels like as soon as I get it cleaned up over here, it's a mess over here. Um, and so what do we do with that? Um, and I think that the crux of the passage is 9B and 10. Um, According to this arrangement, the gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations imposed until the time of Reformation. And so obviously, I mean, you all know that Christ is that Reformation. Um, he is reforming me, even when it's really hard. Um, he, is reforming on my, he is reforming my heart. Um, and it is a painful process, and it feels really long. Um, he is cosmically, epically, terrifyingly big enough to do it. <laughs> um, and I know that different people have different struggles with this, but what my worry a lot of times is, is that he isn't attentive or tender enough 
to hold me in the process of it. Um, I worry that he's still far off. I worry um, that the curtain is still there um, and that he doesn't always hear. Um, But guys, he actively, miraculously convinces me. He persuades me. He pursues me. Um, He not... (laughs) He not only opened the curtain, but he pulls me into his presence, even when I fight against him. And he pulls me into his lap on the mercy seat. And I'm not going to be able to tell this next story (laughs) because it's very um, today. Uh, And I have a three-year-old who was taking her turn as my hardest. Um, It's been a long turn, a long turn. And it's exhausting. Disciplining her is exhausting. It is, um, we've tried it all. We've tried it all. We've tried the timeout. We've tried the talking. I'm praying. We're spanking. We're doing any, any technique, any method. I've tried it. Um, and I love, I love her. Um, but I feel like it rules like a good portion of our life as family. Um, and I have learned that in this process was my first one. You'd put her in time out and you talk about it, pray about it. Okay, it's done. We do the justice and then we're going to talk about it. Um, with Viv, I cannot, I can't do it like that. I can't do the justice first. Um, what she wants, I cannot even talk to her until I, hold, until I pull her up. I have to hold her and sometimes I have to hold her really tightly um, And we have to reconcile first before we can talk about her behavior. Um, And what I believe about Jesus is that he has done the same thing for me, that he will hold me, um, that he will pull me in. In the middle of my tantrum, I will be pulled, he will pull me into his lap, into his arms, into his cheek to cheek presence and hold me there. Um, And this is, what a beautiful thing. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it blows my mind. Um, and so what do I do? I know that he is actively doing this thing for me. Um, but what are the things? Um, how do I live my day-to-day life? Can I make choices um, to engage with this and enjoy his presence? Um, and I think part of this is embedded in this acknowledgement that Um, that he's already acknowledged about us is that um, that it's necessary for me to break down this separation between the holy and the secular, Um, that I can find him and I can worship him in these tactile sensory parts of my life and in his creation, that I can organically and instinctively live in this holy place when I am able to weave worship into my life. Um, and so I think it's good for me to kind of sift through these questions. Um, how can I establish altars in my life? Not, um, not literal altars, metaphorical altars in my life. These memorials to kind of remind me of who he is, to remind me of the things that he's done for me. Um, and this is very simple. Um, but can I take a walk and worship Christ? Absolutely. Can I slice an onion and worship the creator that made this intricate thing? I can worship him in that. Can I weed my garden and worship him? Can I 
um, type an email or write a text, which is harder, and worship him. Um, yes. Can I run a blog? Can I sell a cake? Can I heal people's bodies? Can I do these jobs and, and look to him in those things? Can I shift my eyes um, from the art that's here to the artist? Um, can I look from the symbol to the significance? Um, and in the smallest things, can I find him there? Um, can I take, I want to take the physical and make it worship. Um, and I know that I find it here. And I find it when we come together, when we are swimming in his word. Um, and when the women in this room have taken me and mothered me um, into knowing him more and taught me these things. Um, when the women here have wrapped me in their arms and they have hugged me and shaked me, shaken me when it was appropriate. Um, and so I thank you guys and I thank you that we get to, to worship this great God together. Um, amen. Amen.